0: I'm Ryan and I have the privilege of serving on the staff here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. This summer, we've been making our way through the most foundational story that's found in the Bible. The story of the Exodus Exodus describes the movement of the people of God from a life of slavery and into a life of freedom. This story establishes and defines the relationship of this people with the God that brought them out of slavery. We could even say that each of the stories that we find in the Bible of liberation from judges to Ruth to David with the Philistines to Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah is a recapitulation of this story of the Exodus. They retell this story over and over. This is the story that's retold in the Gospels with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew sets out to establish Jesus as a new type of archetypal Moses character. And the Gospel of Luke has Jesus and his family going down into Egypt so that when they return, they take the same path as their ancestors did. The Exodus is a story of oppression, but it's also a story of redemption and covenant and justice. It's a story of struggle, but it's also a story of freedom and growth and faith. And ultimately, it's a story about each of our lives in this room. And so we find ourselves today at one of the most crucial and central parts of this story. Please stand as I recite these words from the Torah. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back. And there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to God. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord himself fights for you and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, but you lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. This story of the crossing of the Red Sea is very, very well known. It would be rather difficult for me to tell you this story from the stage and try to build suspense in it because you all know the ending. And it's because of this familiarity when we read these stories that sometimes that we become complacent in the reading of them. I got to that point this week, I was reading this story over and over and over again, and I had no idea what I could say that was fresh and new about this story that had not been said a thousand times before. But with a little bit of help, I did finally see a pattern that I had not seen in this story before. And this pattern helped me to understand the different actors within this story and the different ways that they interact with one another, how they impact one another, and how they go through this this pattern is, is that there's a particular word in the Hebrew that's used over and over. Through Exodus 14 and 15, the Hebrew word yad is used ten times. Everybody say yod, yod. This word yad can be translated simply as hand. But there are a few other translations that aren't so evident, but we'll talk about those this morning. Yod is used ten times, like I said, but it's in reference to five different characters within this story. So we'll trace through these five uses. The first time that Yod is used in in this chapter is in verse 8. It says that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. Other translations have that the people of Israel were going out confidently. Or that they were going out without looking back. Or that they were going out defiantly. In the Hebrew text, the phrase is bayad rama," Which translates literally as with arms upraised. These people of Israel are departing from the land of Egypt with their arms in the air. Aware of their victory and defiance in the face of those that oppress them. However, this defiance and this boldness is somewhat short-lived. As only two verses later, in verse 10, it says that the people were terrified that they cried out to their Lord once again. And in verse 11, they turned their attention, they turned their scorn on Moses. They demand to know why exactly Moses took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into this, one, one, this wilderness when they had such wonderful lives back at home. Maybe they were slaves, but it had to be better than the desert, Right. The people of Israel seem to have rather short memory. Think about what they've witnessed in the few weeks before this. They'd seen the Nile River turn to blood. They had seen frogs filling the cities. They had seen all of the dust of the land, and there's a lot of dust in Egypt, turn into gnats. They saw swarms of stinging flies overwhelm everybody but their own people. They had seen a pestilence kill most of Egyptians' domesticated animals. They had seen boils erupting on the Egyptians and the remaining animals. They had seen a hailstorm come and kill crops and people and animals. They had seen locusts that came and ate what remained of those crops. They had seen, or rather not seen, darkness envelop the land for three days. And finally, every firstborn son of the Egyptians had died. The people of Israel had seen these 10 wonders. They'd witnessed the power of their God in aiding them to emancipation. But now they stand on the edge of the sea. And when they look back all they see is the Egyptian army, and they do not have the ability to see anything but these problems. They don't remember the 10 wonders that they'd just seen. They don't remember that they have been passed over by the angel of the Lord. All that they can see is that they have nowhere to go. They have nothing that they could possibly do. And I can see their arms that were so boldly raised in defiance begin to fall. And of course, this reminds me of me. I can't tell you how many times some kind of miracle has happened in my life. I finished school. I came out of the clutches of depression I found faith in some kind of God bigger than myself. I found my wife. I'm father to an amazing son. And whether or not these events have some kind of a natural or supernatural explanation, and I do think that finding Kylie was rather supernatural, these things have been no less miracles in my life. And yet, when I'm faced with some kind of new challenge... Or some kind of difficulty, often the only thing that I see is that new challenge or that difficulty. I usually don't remember immediately what has come before. And like these people of Israel, my hand probably drops maybe even quicker than theirs. But this does bring us to the next use of the word Yod. And this time the Yod is the hand of Moses. Moses. Moses' role in this Exodus narrative has been multifaceted, to say the least. He is the servant of God. He is redeemer and deliverer of Israel. He is the prophet of the Most High. Hebrew scripture scholar Walter Brueggemann describes the role of the prophet to include three main tasks. The first task is that in the face of a dominant, oppressive ideology, the prophet must point toward the reality that the ideology often misses or even hides. The second task is that when those that adhere to that ideology deny that reality that the prophet has shown to them, the prophet has to grieve for the suffering and for what's been lost. The third task of the prophet is to when the uh, when the denial finally ceases and inevitably despair rises, the prophet is to offer hope. The beginning of the book of Exodus tells the story of Moses' development in this role. And in many ways, his path of growth models the path of growth of Israel after him. Because of his early experiences within Pharaoh's household, he can see the bankruptcies of the ideology of empire in Egypt. Because of his time in the desert, he can see the helplessness of a life lived within the ideology of slavery. Moses is a perfect man to confront Egypt with the reality that empire building may be great for those with power and money. But for those without status, the empire is no more than a lifeless and oppressive machine. And he's also the perfect man to tell the people of Israel that there is a bigger reality than that of endless toil. When the people are on the shore of the sea, staring back at all of that military strength of the empire of Egypt, they actually want to go back into their life of oppression. They say that it would be preferable to live in slavery than die in the desert. But Moses here is able to open their eyes to a new reality. He opens their eyes to the presence of a God that has gotten them this far and will continue to take them further. He tells the people of Israel, do not be afraid, but stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, for the Lord himself fights for you. And as God told him to do, he raises and he stretches out his yod, his hand over the sea, and the water before him is cut into two. The people are able to walk through these parted waters on dry land, and as those people are walking through that sea, don't you think that they began to see that there was a bigger reality than what they were aware of before That maybe this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was real, was powerful, was acting on the side of the oppressed. And I can see some of them, as they begin to walk through these walls of water, begin to raise their hands again. But this takes us to another use of the word hand. In verse 30 of chapter 14, it reads, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel had been under the hand of the Egyptians. To be under the hand of Egypt and Pharaoh is to be under the hand of an enormous, powerful, rich regime that is built from the ground up on oppression. Slaves were, of course, the lowest of the low. They were expected to serve everybody. But every level of society... ...was expected to serve those above them. So the lower class served at the whim of the middle class... ...and the middle class served at the whim of the upper class... ...and the upper class served at the whim of the elite... ...and the elite even had to serve at the whim of Pharaoh. And though it seems that Pharaoh might be on the top of this pyramid... ...Pharaoh himself had quite a weight on his shoulders. Pharaoh had to do certain things every single day... ...so that the sun would rise so that the Nile would flood, so that the Nile would recede. And if Pharaoh did not do these things, the entire societal structure around him would come crashing down on his shoulders. This entire system from the ground up is built on oppression. It's built on slavery. And this structure had existed for 2,000 years before Moses even came into the picture. So they've been doing this for a while. Of all the enemies that are set up against the people of Israel in the Bible, Egypt is portrayed as the worst. At the beginning of chapter 4, Pharaoh even tells us why he decides he wants to pursue Israel yet again. Remember, Pharaoh has seen all of these wonders just like Israel had seen. Though from his perspective, they were certainly considered plagues. And even though he's seen the consequences of what pursuit of this people might bring, he decides to pursue them anyway. And the reason that he does this is that he and his counselors realize that they're about to lose their slaves. In this entire system built on oppression, it will collapse if they lose the most basic building block of cheap labor. And so with the religious and economic system in tatters, Pharaoh gathers his last resource, his army, his chariots, his elite soldiers, and he sets out in pursuit of his cheap labor. This brings us to the fourth actor in this story. In verse 31, it says that Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. Yod here is translated as power. Israel saw the great power, the great hand of the Lord used against the Egyptians. Now, I usually hesitate to say that God hates anything or anybody But I think that in this context, it might be safe for me to say that God hates the mistreatment, the misuse, the oppression, and the abuse abuse of his children. God created humanity for freedom. One of the main ideas that we teach around this church constantly is this idea of freedom. Pastor Magnitsky frequently quotes Rabbi Jonathan Saxon in saying that God desires the free worship of his free people. The story of the Exodus is a story of freedom that's framed by its people crying out from within slavery. From the first cry back, to, back in chapter 2, all the way through this story and beyond it, the people cry out to their God in terrible conditions. And when God hears these cries and when he sees the conditions of his people, God begins to enter the story as a char- character of active power. God's action in this story is to dismantle the oppressive ideology of empire, piece by piece by piece. I mentioned already that the ten plagues of Egypt had torn down the religious and economic structure of Egypt. And each of those plagues had a specific target within the Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses. And each of those plagues had some kind of impact on the Egyptian version of Wall Street, because it was the commodities of Egypt that were destroyed. God looks at this narrative of commodity that Egypt has been telling for 2,000 years. And he shows that the entire narrative is bankrupt within a matter of weeks. This story tells us that a society that's built on the exploitation of people cannot survive the hand of God. God. This society cannot defend itself with its religion. This society cannot defend itself with its political leadership. It cannot defend itself with its money. And finally, as seen with the closing of the waters on chaos on top of this army of Egypt, it cannot defend itself with its military. God will come in power for the sake of his oppressed people. And so we come to the final use of the word yad. Yad. Remember, the first was the people going out defiantly and boldly. The second use was Moses stretching his hand out over the sea. The third use was the hand of Egypt oppressing the people of God. The fourth use is God himself coming in power. And in this fifth use, which is found in chapter 15, verse 20, it says that after the people had gone through the sea on dry ground, came to the other side of the sea and looked behind them to see the army of the Egyptians buried beneath the waters. Miriam, the sister of Moses, takes out her tambourine in her hand and she begins to sing. The ancient rabbis had this way of talking about the kingdom of heaven and what it was like and what it looked like. And they modeled the kingdom of heaven after three things found within the Exodus story. Some of the rabbis said that the first thing that goes with the kingdom of God is that God comes in power. And they called it the hand of God. The first part of the kingdom of God is the power and the hand of God active and working in our world. The second part of the kingdom of heaven is that his people acclaim him. Miriam and the people of the sea had seen God's power in action on their behalf. And when they came through it, they celebrated The third piece of the kingdom, according to the rabbis, is that God's people then listen to what he says. And we'll have more of a sermon on this in a few weeks when we come to Mount Sinai in our narrative. But briefly here, obedience is an important piece to the kingdom of God. Though you might be surprised to know that the word obedience doesn't exist in Hebrew. There is no word that strictly means to obey. Anytime that you do happen to see the word obey in our English text, the Hebrew word Behind that is Shema. Listen. And so every Sunday morning in our family of churches, we recite this Shema together. We do this because we seek to be like our Rabbi Jesus who would have recited this prayer multiple times every day. But we also do this because the Shema itself is a celebration of the kingdom of God. We raise our own hands We put our pinkies in the air to say that God has enough power in his hand or in his pinky to change the world. We acclaim God in the Shema as our only God and we declare our love for him with all of who we are. And Shema means to listen, to hear, to obey. And so in the Shema, we also remind ourselves of this third piece of the kingdom. And so please celebrate the kingdom of God with me this morning. Please stand and recite these words with me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.